On January 5, 1757, Giacomo Girolamo Casanova arrived in Paris. One of the first places he went was the Palais Bourbon, a government building located in the 7th arrondissement. There to greet him was his favorite peeping Tom, the Abbé de Berny, formerly France's ambassador to Venice and newly appointed papal counselor of state. The two men had an unusual friendship. Years ago, de Berny had enjoyed watching Casanova make love to his mistress, a nun named Maria Eleonora. But Casanova didn't visit the Palais Bourbon to talk about trysts from days gone by. Casanova needed help. When he walked through the door, de Berny greeted him with a warm embrace. Casanova started to explain the circumstances that brought him to Paris, but de Berny interrupted. He had already heard about Casanova's arrest, imprisonment, and miraculous escape. He handed Casanova the letter he'd received from Maria Eleonora. Casanova remarked that she had gotten a few of the details wrong, but the story was more or less correct. He was in deep trouble with the Venetian inquisitors, and even across international borders, he wasn't entirely safe. The Inquisition had spies everywhere. It was only a matter of time before one of them recognized Casanova and sent him back to prison. His only hope was to secure the protection of the French government. But to do that, he needed to prove himself useful, perhaps as a spy himself. This is Espionage, the ParCast original exploring the missions of the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations into the public eye. Throughout this show, we'll explore real-world spy tactics required to impersonate, exploit, and infiltrate the most confidential places in the world. I'm your host, Carter Roy. You can listen to all of ParCast shows on your favorite podcast directory. New episodes come out on Fridays. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on Giacomo Girolamo Casanova, the infamous ladies' man. But Casanova was a man of many talents. He was a con man, a gambler, a charlatan, and most curiously a spy for the Inquisition. Last week, we followed Casanova's daring escape from a Venetian Inquisition prison. This week, we'll explore the events that led to his return to Venice and his work as a spy. At the time Casanova arrived in Paris in 1757, the Seven Years' War between Britain and France was in full swing. Venice, Casanova's home republic, remained neutral in the conflict, and as such, the Venetian government maintained an embassy in Paris. And where there is an embassy, there are always spies. Casanova knew that the best way to stay out of the clutches of the Venetian Inquisition spies was to cozy up to the French government. His friend, the Abbé de Berny, was a powerful diplomat in France. If anyone could keep the Venetian embassy off Casanova's back, it was him. Not long after their meeting in January of 1757, 
de Berny approached Niccolo Arizzo, the Venetian ambassador to France, on Casanova's behalf. Arizzo wouldn't meet with Casanova personally, not wanting to compromise himself with the state inquisitors, but he promised de Berny that he wouldn't pursue Casanova either. As long as Casanova stayed out of trouble, he would be safe in France. But safety was never Casanova's primary concern. As always, he desired fame and fortune. Not long after his arrival in Paris, de Berny offered Casanova a piece of advice. Try to think up some project profitable to the royal exchequer, avoiding anything complicated. The suggestion was a good one. At the time, the French treasury had been drained by two concurrent wars, the Seven Years' War and the French and Indian War. Any man who could line the royal coffers would forever have a friend in the French government. The only problem was that Casanova was no financial genius. He was a compulsive gambler with mountains of personal debt. He racked his brain for a solution to the funding problem, but nothing useful came to mind. But it was too late to back out. De Berny had already secured Casanova a meeting with the newly appointed Comptroller General, Jean de Boulogne, Count of Nogent. De Berny told Casanova he had to pretend to be a wealthy financier. That was the only way the Comptroller General would agree to the meeting. Casanova found this wildly amusing, but in true Casanova fashion, he played the part well. When he arrived, the comptroller told him that de Berny had spoken highly of him and his financial acumen. Casanova stifled a laugh and launched into his half-baked sales pitch, I have a plan which would give the king the interest of a hundred million. The comptroller asked him how much the plan would cost. And Casanova replied, merely the cost of receiving. The comptroller said, I know what you're thinking of. He invited Casanova to a dinner party the following night to discuss the plan in more detail. Casanova was baffled. He himself didn't know what he was thinking of, but it looked like the comptroller had come up with a plan for him. He later wrote, quote, there was something odd and comic about the whole affair but that corresponded very well with my modes of thought and action. The following night, Casanova joined the Comptroller for dinner. There he met all the leading financiers in Paris. Casanova, of course, was broke, but he didn't let them suspect he wasn't just as rich as the rest of them. After dinner in the drawing room, one of the financiers, a businessman named Joseph Perry Duvernay, handed Casanova a folio book. He said, that, I think, Mr. Casanova, is your plan. Casanova read the proposal. A monthly lottery. Ninety tickets would be sold each month, and only five of them would be winners. He closed the book and said, I confess, sir, that is exactly my idea. The problem the financiers were unable to solve was where to come up with the prize money for the lottery's first drawing. Well, Casanova suggested withdrawing it from the royal treasury. He reasoned that before the hundred million in prizes was paid out, the treasury would have earned 150 million from ticket sales. 
These numbers, of course, had been made up on the spot, and the financiers seemed skeptical. They asked, what happens if the king loses the money on the first drawing? Casanova replied, I will prove to you before all the mathematicians in Europe that, granted God is neutral, it is impossible that the king will not profit by this lottery. Casanova explained that the law of probability ensured that in the end, the king would enjoy a profit of at least 20% of his investment. He argued, were not all the insurance companies wealthy? It was the same principle with a lottery. Casanova was not a brilliant mathematician, but he was an expert salesman. He said it with such confidence that the financiers were in. Confidence is an important tool for a spy, but according to former covert CIA intelligence officer Andrew Bustamante, confidence isn't an internal quality, but an external tool. He says, quote, Confidence is something other people project onto us. The best we can do is make other people feel confident in us. Now, appearing confident means a spy won't be questioned. As Bustamante says, if someone's projecting confidence onto you, there isn't room for them to think much else about you. Being confident essentially shuts down the conversation. Confidence isn't a feeling, it's a mask. And Casanova wore that mask well. The first lottery drawing was scheduled for about a year later, on April 18, 1758. If the lottery were a success, Casanova would have it all, fame, fortune, and most importantly, the protection of the most powerful people in Paris. Casanova would write, Paris was, and still is, a city where people judge everything by appearances. There is not a country in the world where it is easier to make an impression. But in case his lottery backfired, Casanova had plans to make another impression of a very different sort. In the summer of 1757, he found himself in the service of the French government, not as a financier, as a spy, for his old friend de Bernie, who was working his way up from his current position to a much higher post in the French government, Secretary for Foreign Affairs. In early May 1757, Casanova received a letter from the Abbe de Berny instructing him to go to Dunkirk and report back on a dozen or so warships anchored there. De Berny wanted a full report on the ship's combat readiness, their supplies, the number of crewmen per boat, their stocks of munitions. France was still at war with Britain, but Casanova wasn't spying on the British. He was spying on France's own navy. King Louis XV's navy was essential to victory against the British in the Seven Years' War. But de Berny was worried that King Louis wasn't being honest with the foreign ministry about the Royal Navy's readiness for battle. So de Berny sent Casanova to gather information on the fleet. The question is, why Casanova? He certainly had many qualities necessary for a successful spy, charm, cunning, and the ability to pretend to be someone else. But the French government, and certainly the foreign ministry, had its own network of spies. Why didn't de Berny send one of his own? The answer is likely plausible deniability. 
The U.S. government first coined the doctrine of plausible deniability in a National Security Council directive issued in 1947. The directive authorized the U.S. to undertake a broad range of covert operations, from subversion to economic warfare to gathering information. It stated that these covert actions should be planned and executed in such a way that, if uncovered, the U.S. government can plausibly disclaim any responsibility for them. Almost 200 years before that National Security Council directive was issued, the Abbe de Berny was employing the same methodology. If King Louis discovered that de Berny was spying on him, de Berny's body might be deprived of his head. But if Casanova was found out, de Berny could disavow the foreign ministry's involvement and distance himself from Casanova's actions. For Casanova, the potential risks were far outweighed by the lucrative reward de Berny was offering, not to mention, as long as de Berny was happy, Casanova would be safe from the ever-watchful eyes of the Inquisition. So Casanova set about the task at hand. He secured a fake passport and made the three-day journey to Dunkirk. There, he checked into a hotel and began his career as an undercover agent. Coming up, we'll look at Casanova's time as a spy. Now, back to the story. In May 1757, Giacomo Girolamo Casanova arrived in Dunkirk, France, with a top-secret directive. Look into the French naval fleet and determine if they're really as battle-ready as the king claims they are. For a man as charming and deceptive as Casanova, it was no difficult task. He wrote... It took me no more than three days, not only to pick up an acquaintance of all the Navy captains, but to become good friends with them. He did this by regaling the sailors with stories from his time serving in the Navy of the Venetian Republic. This was a lie. Casanova had never served in the Venetian Navy, but it made him someone the sailors could relate to. They were so enraptured by his stories they didn't notice he was speaking complete nonsense. The Navy captains willingly gave him tours of each of their ships and answered all of Casanova's detailed questions. Each night, he wrote down everything he had learned. After two weeks, he left Dunkirk, confident that de Berny would be satisfied with his efforts. Indeed, he was. For his two-week mission to Dunkirk, Casanova was paid handsomely, 12,000 francs, nearly $50,000 in today's currency. Casanova had done the French government a great service, and he'd made a pretty penny in return. But when his lottery plan was put into action in 1758, he really hit the jackpot. The first drawing of the lottery happened on April 18, 1758. It was a resounding success. Drawing in a net profit of 600,000 francs from ticket sales, worth over $2 million today. And Casanova, who was responsible for distributing the tickets, received a sizable cut of it. Casanova used his newfound wealth to enjoy life's pleasures and travel the world. Holland, Germany, Switzerland, 
But even as he saw the pleasures the world had to offer, his heart longed for home. The only question was, how could he get back in the good graces of the Venetian inquisitors? Ten years after his lottery struck gold for France in the fall of 1768, Casanova found himself in Spain, still longing for Venice. He was older now, in his mid-forties, but he was dealing with the same problem that had plagued him since he was a young man, his weakness for beautiful women. This time, his eye fell on Nina Bergonza, a courtesan in her twenties. Casanova first met Nina outside a bullfighting arena in Saragossa, Spain. There were plenty of red flags that might have cautioned Casanova to stay away from her, primarily that she was the kept woman of a powerful man in Spain, Ambrosio Funes de Villalpando, the Count of Ricla and Captain General of Catalonia. But Casanova couldn't resist complimenting Nina. She responded by placing her hand on top of his, staring deeply into his eyes, and inviting him to breakfast the following morning. Casanova was more than happy to oblige. At breakfast, in her big, beautiful, rented house, things took a turn towards the bazaar. Nina was offended by her manservant's attire, so she cursed his appearance, took up a pair of scissors, and started cutting the clothes he was wearing to pieces. The manservant cursed her, calling her mad. She fired back, be still, pimp, and slapped him across the face with the back of her hand. She then ordered him to fetch food and drink for her guest. As they breakfasted together, Casanova asked about the manservant. Nina didn't hesitate. He wasn't a manservant at all. He was a spy for the Count. His job was to report back on Nina's behavior. The Count was in love with Nina to the point of obsession, and she took pleasure in displeasing him. She told Casanova she treated the manservant badly on purpose so that he would complain to the Count about it. Following this revelation, Nina regaled Casanova with stories of her sexual exploits. As soon as they were done eating, a young man, Nina's latest exploit, walked in the room. Nina had her way with him right then and there, while Casanova watched. Then she poured wine down the young man's throat until he was sick. Shrieking with laughter, she fled into another room pulling Casanova behind her. Casanova was mystified by her. He'd finally met his match, a woman even more lustful and depraved than he was. He would later write, in all my life I had never seen or imagined that such a woman could exist. It wasn't long before Nina and Casanova's conversation turned back to the Count, the benefactor of her lavish lifestyle. Nina told Casanova, I'd love to ruin him, but he is so rich it is impossible. This should have been another red flag for Casanova. As far as he knew, the Venetian inquisitors still had a bounty out for him, and his safety depended on the good graces of Europe's power players. If the Count was as rich and powerful as Nina described, he was the wrong person for Casanova to quarrel with. In fact, 
Not long after the pair first met, a guard in town tried to warn him that you run a great risk by going every night to call on La Nina. Casanova told the guard that he wasn't worried. As long as Nina wanted him there, he would call on her. The guard pressed the issue. He told Casanova that the Count was a proud man and that he would never intervene personally, but the Count had other ways of getting his point across. The guard rattled off a list of Nina's former lovers who the Count had either ruined or thrown in jail. But when it came to Nina, Casanova was like a moth to a flame. On November 15, 1768, Casanova was leaving a late-night party at Nina's house when two men accosted him. Casanova leapt back and unsheathed his sword. He shouted murder and thrust his sword into the nearest body. Then he ran away into the night as fast as he could. He heard a gunshot behind him, so he kept running and didn't stop till he reached his inn, panicked and breathless. When he arrived, he noticed a hole in his coat just below the armpit. The bullet his attacker fired had narrowly missed. It seems that Nina's manservant had reported back to the Count about Casanova and Nina's newfound friendship. In response, it appeared the Count ordered a hit on Casanova. But when the assassination failed, the Count initiated Plan B, putting Casanova in jail. At 7 a.m. on the morning after the attack, there was a knock on the door of Casanova's room. When he opened the door, he was met by a police officer. The officer escorted him to the Citadel, a prison on the eastern side of Barcelona. He was taken to a cell on the second floor. Casanova was distraught. He had been the victim of a crime, but he was being treated like the perpetrator. But at least if he was going to be locked away, the Citadel in Barcelona was nicer than the Leds prison in Venice. Casanova almost liked the Citadel. He had a big, fluffy bed. The room was spacious, and the food was good. He had a desk and a chair and a pen and paper, and he would put them to good use. Casanova didn't pen a letter to his powerful friends back in France, and he didn't write to Nina begging for her assistance. He used his talents as a wordsmith to write something for an audience of one or three, rather, the Council of Three who led the Venetian Inquisition. Decades before Casanova was locked away in the Citadel, a French writer named Abraham Nicolas Amelot de la Housset had written a controversial history of Venice. Housset's history enraged Venetians, and it was always a thorn in the side of the Inquisition. But in the 70 years since Usse's history, no one had ever written a rebuttal. Casanova was determined to be the first. By taking up pen and paper and denouncing Usse with a pro-Venice history of his own, Casanova was sending a signal to the Inquisition. The prodigal son was ready to come home. He would show them that his skills as a writer could be put to useful purposes. And so, in his cell at the Citadel, Casanova set out to write what would become one of his most famous pieces, Confutazione della Storia del Governo Veneto, 
Demlo de la Ousay. Forty-two days later, he had written a full draft of the three-volume essay. But before he could publish it, he had to get out of prison. Luckily, he wouldn't have to wait long. On December 28th, just six weeks after he was arrested, the jailer walked into Casanova's cell and told him to get dressed. He asked the guard if he was being released. The guard replied, I know nothing about it. I shall deliver you to an official of the government who is in the guardhouse. The government official gave Casanova his belongings, his papers, his passport, and his sword. It's unclear why, but Casanova was released. He walked out of the citadel with his golden ticket, the Confutizione manuscript, tucked under his arm. He had managed to get out of prison through no effort of his own. He had devised a brilliant strategy for getting back into the good graces of the Inquisitors. The only thing left to do was put that plan into motion. Coming up, we'll follow Casanova's return to Venice and his official employment as a spy for the Inquisition. Now, back to the story. By the end of 1773, Casanova was living quietly in Italy in the city of Trieste. At nearly 50 years old, he had learned from the mistakes of his past, when so many times he had gambled away his earnings. He wrote that he, quote, never played cards, and at dinner time I went every day to take potluck at the houses of those who invited me. It was a simpler life than what Casanova was used to. Since he was released from the Citadel prison nearly a decade ago, he had been focused on one singular goal, getting back to Venice, and he had been working hard to achieve it. He wrote frequently to the secretary of the Tribunal of the Inquisitors, making impassioned appeals for a pardon. He cited his past writings, particularly Confuta Zione, his rebuttal of Usse's History of Venice, as evidence of his usefulness to the state. Casanova was hoping for a simple pardon, but the Inquisitors had other plans in mind. They sent him an honorarium of 100 silver ducats and gave him instructions. Resolve the great problem of the Armenians. The problem of the Armenians centered around four Armenian monks who had fled the convent of St. Lazarus in Venice after a conflict with the abbot. They found a new home in Vienna, Austria, and established a press to publish Armenian books. This press turned out to be extremely lucrative, and the Austrian government happily went into business with the monks. This arrangement made the Austrians a lot of money, money that the inquisitors believed should be going to the Venetian government instead. The inquisitors wished to entice the monks and their money back to Venice. And if anyone could close the deal, it was Casanova. Casanova knew he was being tested. The Inquisitors were giving him a chance to show his value, and he was determined not to disappoint them. So he set out to Vienna and introduced himself to the Armenian monks. As he would later write, quote, In a week or ten days, I became quite intimate with them. In espionage, the ability to build rapport is essential, 
according to Robin Dreek, a 15-year veteran of the FBI and a specialist in relationship building, there are numerous techniques an agent can employ to build rapport. Smiling, speaking slowly, offering validation and sympathy, and being thoughtful and accommodating. In other words, being a charmer. This was Casanova's specialty. After a week or two, once the monks were firmly on his side, he made his pitch. Free yourselves from your exile. Give your loyalty and your money to the Inquisitors, and you can return home to Venice. One of the monks, the most stubborn of the bunch, told Casanova that the abbot at their old convent had behaved like a despot, and he had no plans to return there. Life in Vienna was going just fine for them. Another one of the monks liked Casanova's idea, but he had his conditions, 400,000 ducats. Casanova took notes of their demands, wrote up a memo of his conversations with the monks, and sent it off to the tribunal in Venice. The inquisitors were pleased with Casanova's work. They agreed to the monks' demands, brought them home, and rewarded Casanova with a salary of 10 zucchini per month. Casanova wrote, I find myself in the pay of the same tribunal that had deprived me of my freedom and whose power I had defied. On the contrary, I felt that I was the victor, and my honor demanded that I make myself useful to it. For the rest of the year, he stayed in regular communication with the inquisitors and continued to hold out hope for a pardon. In his communications with the tribunal, he reminded them of all his good work on behalf of Venice. He had written and published Confutizione, he had written and published a volume of the History of Poland, and he was working on an Italian translation of the Iliad. Eventually, in 1774, the tribunal allowed Casanova to return to Venice. But this gift didn't come without strings attached. The tribunal wanted something in return. They wanted Casanova to work for them as an informant. In FBI parlance, informants are known as confidential human sources. According to the FBI's Human Source Policy Guide, before approaching a potential informant, FBI agents are encouraged to build a detailed file on that person. Derogatory information is particularly useful because it can be used to coerce cooperation from otherwise unwilling recruits. In the case of Casanova, the state inquisitors had plenty of derogatory information on him, enough to lock him away in prison for life. But they wouldn't have to coerce Casanova's cooperation. He was more than happy to give them what they wanted in exchange for a pardon. On September 10, 1774, Casanova finally returned to Venice after nearly two decades in exile. He later wrote, quote, My return to Venice after 19 years was the most pleasant moment of my life. He promptly appeared before the secretary of the tribunal. The secretary had good news. Casanova had been pardoned of all crimes. The decision was made based on Casanova's writing, particularly Confutazione, the plan he devised while locked away in the Barcelona Citadel had worked. The Inquisitors invited Casanova to dinner that night. They asked him to tell the harrowing tale of his escape from the Leds prison. 
Casanova did as he was asked, and the inquisitors listened with delight. But Casanova was careful with his words. They had pardoned him. That didn't mean they weren't watching his every move and dissecting his every word. The pardon was conditional, and to stay in their good graces, he would have to make himself useful time and time again. According to Casanova's historian, Lawrence Burgreen, author of Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius, during his absence from Venice, quote, the Inquisition had become vastly more powerful. Spies were everywhere, and they were chosen or coerced into reporting on those in the same milieu. As is the case with many of history's most intriguing spies, there is little surviving record of Casanova's work as an informant for the Inquisition, but we do have some details. In November of 1781, Casanova wrote a report for the Inquisitors mourning of a band of rogue painters. This unofficial society of painters would meet at night, near the Calle del Redotto, and create paintings of nude models, an uncouth activity in Inquisition-era Venice. He also wrote a report on a nobleman named Giancarlo Gramani who made unauthorized contact with foreign diplomats. In the 1780s, the Inquisitors were extremely paranoid over global trends toward democracy in America and France. They feared that if the elites who governed Venice were infected with notions of democracy, the Inquisition might lose its power. Thus, the Venetian nobility was forbidden to have any contact with foreigners. On May 3, 1782, shortly after Casanova delivered his report, Grimani was summoned and, quote, cautiously reminded to abstain from frequenting foreigners and affiliates. Casanova, the lover of libertine principles, had become the very object of his own disdain. He had become a tool of the body that had once thrown him in jail. Still, in order to remain in Venice, it was a price Casanova would have to pay. But his days in Venice were numbered. It wouldn't be long before Casanova found himself back under the gaze of the Inquisitor's ever-watchful eyes. In May of 1782, after a heated argument over money with a debt collector, Casanova's temper got the best of him. He was always a man driven by passion, not by logic. Logic would have told Casanova to leave well enough alone, to swallow his pride and keep his mouth shut. But passion urged him to take up pen and paper, write a vicious satire aimed at the debt collector, and have it printed for mass consumption. In the satire, Casanova took shots not only at the debt collector who had wronged him, but at the nobility and the entire Venetian establishment. Publishing this was a huge mistake. Casanova was urged by friends to leave the city immediately. If he didn't, the inquisitors would take back their pardon, and Casanova would find himself locked away in Doge's palace again. So on January 17, 1783, Casanova left Venice for good. He would later write, quote, Either I am not made for Venice, I told myself, or Venice is not made for me. In a story filled with violence, drama, and sexual intrigue, 
The final chapter of Casanova's life ends on a sad note. He spent his final days in Teplitsa, a city in the modern-day Czech Republic, where he worked as a librarian. He devoted his time to writing his memoir. It's worth noting that Casanova's memoir, The History of My Life, ends in 1774, the very year that he returned to Venice and began working as an informant for the Inquisition. The history of my life is a fanciful tale, filled with daring escapes, magic, duels, and romantic trysts with scores of women, the epitome of a life lived for libertine principles. But when Casanova finally gets what he thought he wanted, when he finally secures a pardon and returns to the Venice he once loved, the memoirs stop. Perhaps that's because Casanova made a Faustian bargain with the state inquisitors. He informed on artists, painters, writers, and intellectuals, his fellow libertines. And he did it in the name of an institution anathema to Casanova's life, an institution of oppression, dedicated to preserving the power of the few at the expense of the many. On June 4, 1798, at the age of 73, Casanova passed away with his unpublished and incomplete memoirs sitting by his side. Perhaps the stories stopped where they did because Casanova no longer liked the man he had become. He had been a lover, a writer, a con man, a gambler, a priest, a lottery maker, and a litany of other things. But in the end, it was his final vocation that of an informant that sullied the many masks he had worn in his life. Through his espionage, he became the very thing he had reviled. Thank you for listening to Espionage. We'll be back Friday with a new episode. For more information on Giacomo Casanova, amongst the many sources we used, we found Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius by Lawrence Burgreen, Casanova, Actor, Lover, Priest, Spy by Ian Kelly, and Casanova's autobiography, The Story of My Life, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back Friday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Espionage, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another deep dive into the world of clandestine operation. Espionage was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Espionage is written by Stephen Walters. I'm Carter Roy. Remember, you can hear more stories of history's greatest moles by following Espionage on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Friday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.